Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, we're just back from uh, 18 days in Scotland. We... uh We'd planned that for September of 2020, a year ago, and it didn't happen. And so we, we did it this year, although it was, you know, you had to jump over a lot of hurdles to get there, but we got there. And uh, so we, we spent some time in Edinburgh. We spent a week up in the Highlands. But the main reason for going was uh, to go on a pilgrimage, to walk. You know, we, we've taken to that in, in these recent years. And so we were there to walk St. Cuthbert's Way. Now, you, you might be asking yourself, who is this Saint Cuthbert of which you refer? Well, glad you asked. Uh, Cuthbert, he lived from 634 to 687, a long time ago. Uh, he was an Anglo-Saxon monk, Christian, uh, missionary, abbot, leader of a monastery, founder of a monastery, and he is a very important figure in helping bring Christianity to northern England and Scotland. Uh, at that time, there in the 7th century, northern England and Scotland was still primarily pagan, and St. Cuthbert was one of the most effective missionaries in bringing the gospel and converting that part of the British Isles over 13 centuries ago. And uh, he was associated with two important monasteries, one in Melrose and one on the holy island of Lindisfarne. And uh, so a pilgrimage has arisen where he walked between those two sites from Melrose to Lindisfarne. It's about 70 miles. And so we were, we were walking. I think I got, I got yeah, there's a, doesn't that just, isn't that just charming? Just, you know, you want to be there. Well, that's, yeah, that's Perry in the, in the see if I can say it right, Perry, Chiviat. Did I say it right? Yeah, it's, it's close enough. Cheviot Hills uh, on the border of Scotland and England. Sometimes we're in Scotland, sometimes we were in England, and sometimes we didn't know. Well, I'd say, are, Perry, are we in England or Scotland? She said, I don't know. We're in one or the other. And so we were walking this 70 miles. Uh, but what's really interesting is the final two miles. We took five days to get right up to the island, but then the, the final day, we... we uh, We walked the final two miles, which is, um, well, across what they call the Holy Sands. Lindisfarne is an island, and this was like the the stronghold for the Christian community in the 7th century as they then began to invade into northern England and Scotland, bringing the good news of Jesus. But this island is, is unusual in that it is inaccessible during high tide. You, you can't get to it. It's an, it's an island out there, but it has these dramatic tidal changes. And so, you know, every day and it changes, you have to know the tides and all of that. Uh, you, can, you can walk there. And so Perry and I walked there across what they call the Holy Sands. I mean, if you, if you try it at the wrong time, it's, you know, eight feet of water. But if you time it right, you can walk there. And so we, we walked to the, the Holy Island where there was a church been there since the seventh century. And um, there's a poem that I found. I want to share that with you. I've got to hear so much. Did I bring this with me? Oh, thank you, Perry, my lovely assistant. Yes, 
Uh, this is from my little journal from when we were in Scotland. Um, so, so there's this rhythm to this holy island that, that, you know, half the time it's surrounded by the North Sea and cut off from the mainland, and then half the time it's open and accessible. And St. Aidan, who was a contemporary of St. Cuthbert, he wrote this poem. So, I mean, get the picture that, that the tide comes and, and it's an island and then the tide goes out and it's, it's connected to the, to the mainland. And he wrote this poem. It's really a prayer. Leave me alone with God as much as may be. As the tide draws the water close in upon the shore, make me an island set apart, alone with you, God, holy to you. Then... With the turning of the tide, prepare me to carry your presence to the busy world beyond. The world that rushes in on me till the waters come again and fold me back to you. What a beautiful picture of really the holy rhythm that we should have in life. Of we are an island surrounded by God alone and we are immersed in God. In God we live and move and we have our being. But, but we can't stay there all day. And then... The tide recedes and we're connected to this world, this life, our jobs, what we do, and we go forth. But because we have been, an, because we've been on the holy island of fellowship with God, we're able to come into the world not oppressed by the busyness of the world. Well, I would say that my pilgrim self is my most contemplative self. You know, you walk 14 miles a day or so. You have a lot of time just to think and it's pastoral and it's peaceful and it's quiet. And we saw very few people. There were very few pilgrims. And so we could go great stretches of time and not see anyone. A lot of time to think over those 70 miles. Um, and so from St. Cuthbert's way, I'm bringing you a sermon this morning entitled Older Than Methuselah. Genesis 5. 27. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years. Right before we went to Scotland, I gave an interview on a Christian television program in Florida. And this was the final question of the hour-long interview. I was asked, where do you find hope? And I responded without thinking about it. I spoke from the heart. Usually when you get a question like that, you, you jump up into your head and you say, well, and you try to come up with something that sounds reasonably intelligent and doesn't make you look foolish. <laughs> Especially when you know it's an interview and it's television and all of that. But this time that didn't happen. It just came out of me. You know, sometimes you don't know what you know until you hear yourself say it. You ever had that phenomenon? You don't know what you know until you hear yourself say it. It's out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the question was, where do you find hope? And I just immediately said, I find hope in the antiquity of the church. I find hope in just how old the church is. Just how long it's been around. Now, the easiest thing for those who specialize in critiquing Christianity is to criticize the church. 
you know, anybody can do that. I mean, that's really easy to do. And to be honest, part of the prophetic task of the church is to engage in self-criticism. So there is, there is that to be done. But thoughtful criticism of the church is not really what the contemporary despisers of the church are doing these days. Now, if the church were, whatever, 50 years old, 100 years old, I might be a bit worried about it. But the church is not 50 years old or 100 years old. The church is very old. The church is older than Methuselah. The church, in fact, is more than twice as old as Methuselah. And this is where I find hope. And this is where I found hope. I thought about this while I was walking through Scotland for a week, often walking past uh, artifacts of Christian faith that belong to the first millennium of Christian history. Not the second one that we inhabit or we're moved now, about to move into the third, actually. I mean, we think about, uh, you know, 2000. But really, I assume there's going to be some big things, the traditional date for the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and the birth of the church is A.D. 33. So I assume coming up, you know, in 2033, there'll be some, some big deals made about that. Uh, but as I walked through Scotland last week, very aware of the antiquity of the church, um, I was thinking about things like this. Older than Methuselah. Methuselah. Everybody's heard of Methuselah, I think. You, 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 know, you have these genealogies where, where you've ne you, know, you don't know the names, you don't even know how to pronounce them. But we know Methuselah because he's got the record. I mean, of all the fantastical lifespans attributed to the ancients inhabiting the antediluvian world of Genesis, the longest life is accorded to Methuselah. 969 years. That's, that's, that's like having 12 average lifespans for a contemporary American. You wouldn't get just one life. You'd get consecutive 12 lives, more than that. Can you imagine that? I think it's a fun thought experiment. Just, just imagine. If you, well, it would be like this. You, if, what if you were born, I was born in 1959. What if not born in 1959, I was born in 1052. 1052. That freaks somebody out when you're filling out a form. Birthday, 1052. March 5th, 1052. How old are you? Well, 969. I mean, that would mean that I would have been 14 when the Battle of Hastings occurred, when William the Conqueror defeated Harold the Saxon, and it was kind of the beginning of England. It would mean that if you were that old, uh, you would be 130 when St. Francis of Assisi was born. Now, you have, for this thought experiment, imagine that you sort of age normally until you get to, let's say, you know, 45, 50, and then it's just, and you just cruise. For centuries. You just, you just kind of stay that old. You don't look like you're 969 because that would be pretty bad. I can assume. No, you just, you just sort of stay 45 or 50. That would mean you would be 440 when Columbus accidentally bumped into America. It would mean that you could have seen the Reformation... And still have more than half your life left. 
I say, it's a long, that's, that's a long time to live. Now, if you could live for nearly a thousand years, here's where the thought experiment comes in. How much would you change over that time? How much would you hopefully grow in wisdom, character? How much would you change over that time? I mean, already, how much have you already changed over your puny little lifetime? I mean, I hope, those of you that are older, especially, I hope, I hope that you can look upon your present life and say, I'm a little bit, a little bit wiser than I was at an earlier stage in life. I, I, know that's, I know it's true with me. I mean, I'm not the same person. I mean, of course I am. But, but I look upon my 15-year-old self almost as one looks upon another person. It is me. But I, I look at almost with a profound disassociation. I can see that person. I can love that person. I can understand that person. But I'm not that person. More maybe surprising, I can do that with my 40-year-old self. I can look at my 40-year-old self and say, that's not who I am today. There's a, there's a, a contingency, there's a, a continuity, that's the word I want. There's a continuity, but it's not who I am today. And so I can look upon the faults and follies of my younger selves with compassion and forgive them. Because I can look upon the faults and follies of the 15-year-old or the 40-year-old and say, they just need some more time. I can look upon the faults and follies of my 30-year-old self, my 40-year-old self, and say, it's all right. The faults and follies are real, but he just needs some more time. And the church... Well, the church is more than twice as old as Methuselah. So I think we need to be careful of condemning the church of past eras for not knowing ethically or otherwise what we know or think we know. I mean, we can look upon the medieval church or whatever era, you know, you are particularly scandalized by about the church. And um, feel that they need to be shamed in somehow for not knowing what we know ethically or otherwise today. You know, the church of each era has to inhabit its own time and deal with its own blind spots. So, for example, we of late modernity are quick to judge the medieval church for its veneration of saints and relics and all of that. And we say... In, and with a superior attitude. We say, well, they were so superstitious. Yes, perhaps. Perhaps that's so. They were so superstitious. But might not a future generation of the church look upon us today and say with equal disdain, they were so secular. Hmm. So it's very easy for us to look back 800 years. We look back to the medieval church 800 years ago with their veneration of relics and saints and all that. And we say, oh, they were so superstitious. Perhaps, yes. But I wonder if the church of the 29th century might look back upon us today and say, they were so secular. 
So let's be patient. Let's be patient with others and let's be patient with ourselves. There's nothing wise or holy about condemning earlier expressions of a faith, a faith that is twice as old as Methuselah. I mean, the church just has to grow and develop over time. The church is born, but, you know, it's born, but it's born a baby. And it has to go through adolescence and all of that. It has to grow. Jesus actually has something very provocative to say about this. Jesus specifically addresses uh, the problem of presuming, of presuming that we would have behaved better if we'd lived in their time. Uh, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says, verse 29, uh, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them and shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. This is actually not an easy passage to understand. At first, I think it's a bit confusing until we really see what Jesus is laying his finger upon. There's nothing wrong with building monuments for persecuted prophets. In the, in the days of Jesus, there in the Kidron Valley, there was the tomb of Zechariah, a persecuted prophet. And so um, there's nothing wrong with building monuments for the persecuted prophets, but the problem is the overconfident assumption that we would have behaved better. These prophets were persecuted by the people of their generation, and we wouldn't have done that. When we self-righteously condemn our Christian ancestors, we more closely align with the accusers than with the prophets. I don't know if you see that. I mean, the problem is always in some way or another a sin of accusation. Because that's what the Satan means. The accuser. Hasatan, Hebrew, means accuser. Diabolos, Greek, means accuser. That's what it means. The Satanic is the spirit of accusation. And so, once upon a time, there were these, there were these people living among the Jews who accused their own prophets of being false prophets and they condemned them and killed them and then later monuments are built to them and we stand and we say, we, we accuse the accusers and say, if we had lived in their day, we wouldn't have done that while we're accusing. I don't know if you get it. I could say it like this. Um, we don't get free from the Satan by scapegoating the scapegoaters. We just fall back into that trap. So, you know, it's easy for me to say, I mean, one of the most, one of the more scandalous moments in this long history of the church would be the Crusades, beginning 800 years ago. And I mean, I mean, I can opine as much as you want on how wrong it was. Everything, everything about it was wrong. I mean, just everything, everything. I mean, I can't, I can't, 
Imagine how many theological errors are found in that one phenomenon of the idea that they're going to have to travel to the Middle East and kill Muslims and regain Jerusalem so that God's purposes can be accomplished. I mean, that's just everything's wrong about that. But it's very easy for me to say, well, if I had lived, if I had lived 800 years ago, I would have seen through all that and I wouldn't have participated. Doubtful. I'm quite sure, in fact, that my 30-year-old self and my 40-year-old self would have been preaching crusade sermons because I preached the variation of them in my own life here in the 20th century, 21st century. Now, I do, I do hold a little hope that possibly my 62-year-old self could have awakened and seen the folly of crusading. But I'm in no position just, to, it's, it's wrong, but I don't want to hold myself aloof. So it's no good just to condemn. It's better to be more humble and say something like, Apart from the grace of God, I fear that I could have been just like them. Lord, have mercy. That's about, we're not, we're not going to say that it isn't wrong, that it wasn't sinful, that it wasn't a departure from fidelity to Christ. Of course it was. But the humility comes in when you say, and I fear that apart from some profound work of God's grace, I would have gone along with it. I would have been incapable of seeing it otherwise. And so we need the Lord's mercy. The church is old and perhaps still young. Sila. The church is old. I mean, if you think 2,000 years is old, and I do. But perhaps still young. And the church has made a lot of mistakes along its coming up on two millennia long pilgrimage. You know, Perry and I have been on a couple of 40-day pilgrimages and we did a seven-day pilgrimage. The church has been on pilgrimage for 2,000 years. And along the way, it's, it's got off track. It's made me say, we got off. This, 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 this St. Cuthbert's Bay was not quite as well signed as I would like it. I mean, we were supposed to walk 15 miles the first day and we walked 19. Point one, Perry will tell you. 19.1 because of mistakes we made we just turned the wrong way the sign was confusing and we went the wrong way church has a long history of doing that but here's, here's the good news the church is still loved by her bridegroom abide in that love I'm all, I'm all for honesty. I'm all for being honest about our mistakes and where we've missed it and where we've gone astray. But never forget this. Despite it all, the bridegroom still is madly in love with his bride. Abide in that love. The church has and will survive despite everything. Not because of the faithfulness of its members, but because of the faithfulness of her Lord. Yes, we struggle with our faithfulness as a church. But Jesus is faithful. And that's why the church will survive despite it all. What do we say about the early church? 
That is the apostolic and patristic church, the church of the first three centuries. I'll talk about that in our faith foundations class toward the end of the course. What do we say about the early church? Well, we can and should give a measured privilege to the early church. In that, they have such close proximity to the apostles and to Jesus himself. I mean, the apostolic church is led by those that actually knew Jesus in the flesh. And then you have, you know, Irenaeus, who is like the spiritual grandson of the apostle John. So you pay attention to those. So we give them a measured privilege. And we must always hear their voices. But, listen to me, we cannot go back to the early church. If your vision for the hope of the church of the future is to go back to the early church, it's a fool's errand. You can't go back. You just can't. That was the church inhabiting late antiquity in the Roman Empire. And it developed along certain ways because of that particular environment. That's not the environment we live in. We live, in fact, nothing like that. If you're curious about the early church, I think it's, I think it's valuable to learn about it. The best book I know is The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by Alan Kreider. It's an academic book, so it's not necessarily a, a breezy, fun read. But I found it just absolutely enthralling because I, I want to know about our roots. And I, I want to know about our earliest ancestors and what, what their experience of being the church of Jesus Christ in the earliest days was like. And that book will help you understand that, but it will also help you understand that we cannot recapture that. And I would say, and, and I think I know enough about it, even if we could, I don't think you would like it. If just instantly I could snap my fingers and we would all be back doing church like the early church did it, I think most of us would like, ah, you know, can I go back to the 21st century? Because really, that's, yeah. No, there is no going back. All we can do is move forward, but never alone, always with the Holy Spirit. Always with the Holy Spirit, which is the very opposite of the spirit of accusation. And so we have a 2,000 year history with a story worth remembering and learning for, but we have an eternal future. We have a long history behind us, but we have an eternity in front of us. And of all people, Christians can afford to be patient. So it's easy. It's easy to be critical of the church as an institution. I mean, if we're having a contest, I can do it better than you. I just know enough about the church as an institution to probably win a contest and being critical of it. I get that. I know that. I'm aware. It's, it's not that I'm ignorant. It's not that I'm deceived. It's not that somehow I have, I have screened out these facts about the flaws of the institutional church. Yes, it's easy to be critical of the church as an institution. Anyone can do it. But the church is not so much an institution as it is a sign. A sign that points not to itself, but to Jesus as the Savior of the world. The church has validity despite its faults because it's not the thing itself. It's the sign pointing to the one who is the Savior. See, if you get it in your head, the job of the church is to save the world. Oh, my goodness. Then you will be depressed. Then you will be. You say, 
I look at the church and I go, this is going to save the world? But no, that's not what we, we're not the Savior. We are the sign pointing to the Savior. And so here it is, Sunday morning. We are church, we're in church, we're doing church. So I, want to just, I just want to be a sign. The world of the human family is plagued. We do have problems. The world of the human family is troubled. And we're plagued by, really, an unholy trinity of evils. Sin, Satan, death. What's wrong with the world? That's it. Sin, Satan, death. Sin is that which bends us away from God and thus the good. That which would be human flourishing, that which would be life as it should be in all of its beauty. Sin is this bent, this bending. Sin bends us. It is a bent. Sin is a bent away from God and thus away from all that is good. Satan, Satan is a spiritual phenomenon of evil manifest mostly in accusation. That's why the words Satan and devil both mean the same thing, accuser. And death, well, death is the black hole of non-being that threatens to make what life we have meaningless. But as the church, as the church, we don't have to solve the problem of sin. We don't have to conquer the devil. We don't have to defeat death. All we have to do is just be a sign and point to the one who does. And all of our faithlessness and all of our flaws and all of our follies, we can still just be a dumb sign that stands there and goes, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus is the Savior of the world. And he does it right there. He's on the cross. He bears the sin of the world and forgives it all. So I have good news. Your sin is forgiven by Jesus, the Savior of the world, who hung upon a cross saying, Father, forgive them. And the Father says, of course, son, that's what we do. And so I have good news. Your sins are forgiven. My sins are forgiven. I'm a sinful sign, but I am a sign. And I point to the one who forgives sins. This, this is the one who casts out the devil. Jesus said, if I am lifted up, if I am lifted up, I'm going to drive out the ruler of this world, the Satan, the accuser. Because this, this, is, this is where blame comes to be no more. There's no one left to blame. You don't need to blame anybody. Jesus took all the blame. The innocent one has taken all the blame. The Lamb of God has taken all the blame. The Lamb of God became the scapegoat. He's innocent, but he took all the blame anyway. And so if you understand that and say, I don't have to go through life blaming people, then you opt out of the devil's game. And the devil, as it were, begins to simply, it's like the wicked witch of the West, I'm melting. Just melting. Until there's, 
you melted her. What, what, what does he say? I didn't plan this part of the sermon. You liquefied it. Or what was that? I can't remember how that line goes. When we refuse to blame because we say, you know what? Jesus took all the blame anyway and he forgives it all. That's when the Satan is cast out. And death, that's the big one. The black hole of non-being that threatens to make even what brief bit of life we have without meaning. It's just an absurdity that, that we pop into being for a little bit and then back into the black void of nothingness. Whoa. That's why Jesus dies so that he can go down into death and lay hold of the human race and bring us up out of death into everlasting life. And this is the good news that the church has been pointing to. Jesus is the savior. We've got a problem with sin, Satan, death. Jesus is the one that saves us from all of that unholy trinity of evil. And for 2,000 years, despite everything else, the church has been assigned saying, Jesus is the savior of the world. That's our good news. And you should feel good today because we have good news because Jesus saves the world from the unholy trinity of sin, Satan, and death. Amen. Amen. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So stand with me. And let's prepare to come to the table. You know, Perry and I didn't have communion for two Sundays. The first Sunday we were walking from Heathpool to Wooler. Perry's correcting all my pronunciation today. Heathpool. Heathpool. By the way, just try to ride with a Scottish taxi driver in the Highlands and understand one-fourth of what they're saying. It was, phew. I loved it. It was magical, but I, could, I couldn't, I don't, I would just sit in the back and nod like I understood. Well, it's the first Sunday we were walking from Heathpool to Wooler. And, uh, you know, there was no church. The second Sunday, we, we found a church. It was just right next to us. We were staying in this little hotel on, on uh, the river, yes. the, Ness, the Ness River, yeah, there in Inverness. And uh, it was just half a block from us, Presbyterian Church. And uh, we went to it, enjoyed it. They didn't serve communion. They only do it four times a year. Ah. <laughs> you know, so we, had, we didn't have good odds and we didn't. So I'm glad to be in church because this, this is the most unique thing the church does is to take bread and call it the body of Jesus. Take a cup and call it the blood of Jesus and say, you eat this bread, you drink this blood and you have eternal life and death will not swallow you up. And so we're going to come to the table. Before we do that, we're going to prepare ourselves by a couple of confession, a confession of sin and a confession of faith. We'll start with the confession of faith. This confession of faith is older than Methuselah. Mm-hmm. Probably twice as old as Methuselah. Okay, this is, this is an ancient faith we're confessing, join with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. And now let's confess our sin and receive the Lord's pardon. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are all forgiven. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.